Let's pray, and then, and then we'll get into Jonah chapter 3. Father, by your grace, we ask that you would be active in this place tonight. Our hearts need to be challenged. Our picture of you, who you are, what your character is like, what you do, our picture of you needs to be challenged. It needs to be refined by your word. We ask as, as we look at Jonah 3 tonight that you'd soften our hearts by your spirit, that your Holy Spirit would be active in this room, opening our eyes to see possibly new truths or old truths um, in a fresh way. Humble us under your word. We, um, we need to come to your word tonight and really to be put in our place who we are in, in, a, in an accurate picture of who you are, how infinitely greater than us you are. Prepare our hearts tonight that we would learn. Prepare our hearts that we would be changed people because of what we learn. We ask these things in Christ's name for your glory. Amen. Hey, William. Um, I want to I start tonight before we get in. Um, to Jonah 3 with a little bit of a warning um, that I'm a little bit nervous to teach Jonah 3. It's, it's in some ways a very in-your-face narrative, a very simple narrative, a very clear narrative about what's happening in the story. But as far as the ramifications of that for God's people now, it's a very nuanced chapter we, we have to work a little bit. We've got to grapple a little bit with what's being said. We can't just one for one take what's being said in Jonah 3 and just apply it to ourselves. And so I'm a little bit nervous to teach it because it's nuanced. And so I want to warn you about that up front. As always, we'll have some time at the end for questions. And so if there's stuff that I say along the way that you say, hey, that, that doesn't really make sense, or I don't know if, if I agree with that, please write those questions down. I'd love to, to wrestle with that after um, we learn from Jonah 3, because honestly, I was wrestling with, with this chapter all week. Um, like I said, in some senses, very clear, very straightforward. In other senses, you're kind of left saying, what am I supposed to take with this? How do I see myself in Jonah 3? How do I fit in? What is this saying about God, actually? Um, and so uh, I want to encourage you to jot down notes, jot down stuff that maybe strikes you as different. Um, welcome, Katie and Kenny's uh, to the back. Um, so I just want to say that as a blanket warning up front, because as I was writing this, I was wrestling. And I'm imagining as I'm speaking tonight, you'll be wrestling as well. Um, at least I, I think so. So going back to where we started in the book of Jonah two weeks ago, we started with this big picture notion, salvation belongs to the Lord. We've been hitting that each week. We're going to be hitting that again tonight. And, and really what that's saying is God has supreme power and authority in the area of saving people. Supreme power and authority in the area of saving people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We saw that on Jonah's lips last week from the belly of the fish. In, in the first two chapters of the book of Jonah, if you're here with us or maybe if you just know the story, these first two chapters have been incredibly dramatic. We've looked at these stories. You've got the runaway prophet. You've got a massive storm. You've got the prophet being thrown overboard on a ship in this massive storm at sea. You've got pagan sailors who fear God. You've got Jonah being swallowed by a giant fish. You've got a psalm written from inside of the belly of the, of the giant fish. But as we've seen, all this drama isn't solely for drama's sake. The goal of the book of Jonah isn't just to put this memorable yarn, so to speak, in the Old Testament of like, oh, this is a really cool story. It's not to spice up the minor prophets like, oh man, there's these 12 books that are really hard to wrestle with. Let's throw Jonah in there because Jonah's really exciting. Let's just spice up the minor prophets. The book of Jonah conveys truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it conveys this truth against the dramatic backdrop of the events of this story. So the events of this story are the vehicle through which this truth is being conveyed. The book of Jonah is a dramatic story that teaches its readers something. And the thing that it's teaching is salvation belongs to the Lord. 
That's the lesson that runs throughout this book. And so if you think back uh, a couple weeks ago to the pagan sailors in chapter one, in chapter one, verse three, they board this ship headed for Tarshish. They have no idea what they're about to encounter. In verses four through six of chapter one, they get hit by a massive storm out at sea. In verse seven of chapter one, it it turns out that this storm is actually God trying to get the attention of a runaway prophet that's on board their ship. Then in verse nine, the runaway prophet tells the sailors about the one true God. In verse 12, the runaway prophet convinces the sailors, hey, throw me over the side of the ship and you're gonna be spared. The ship's not gonna be destroyed. And then in verse 15, the sailors finally break down and actually do that. They throw him over the side of the ship and lo and behold, it stops storming. Then in 16, we see the the sailors fear God exceedingly. They offer a sacrifice to God and they make vows. Now I wanna caution, we're not told if these sailors are saved in the modern sense of that word, if they became full-fledged believers in Yahweh. We don't know, but they had a supernatural encounter with God. They were saved from this storm And we see in that salvation belongs to the Lord. And they respond in this way that's pleasing to the Lord. They fear him. They make sacrifices. They offer vows. Then you think about Jonah 2, what we looked at last week. And leading up to that, in Jonah chapter 1, we saw, hey, Jonah's a prophet. He's running as hard as he can away from God's presence. In verses four through six, God throws this huge storm at Jonah trying to get his attention. And then in verse 15, Jonah convinces the sailors to throw him overboard in the midst of this storm. Verse 17, God provides a huge fish to swallow Jonah, keep him alive inside this fish for three days and bring him back to dry land. And then last week, we were looking primarily at verses two through nine of chapter two. From the belly of the fish, Jonah recounts this journey to the depths his cry to the Lord for help, and then God's power to miraculously, supernaturally save him. And honestly, we can't look in chapter two and say, this is Jonah's conversion. This is Jonah getting saved in the modern sense of that word. We don't know. Jonah continues to wrestle throughout the book. But what we see is in a supernatural way, God rescues this prophet from certain death. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He saved the sailors. He saved Jonah. And tonight, as we look at Jonah chapter three, we're gonna see this same truth, salvation belongs to the Lord, applied in another situation. And it's actually a situation that we should have been anticipating to unfold since Jonah one, verse two, what is going to happen when God's word comes to an ultra-violent, really wicked people group and they actually believe it? What's going to happen Is God going to respond with strict justice, punishing this people because of their wicked ways? Is that how God's going to react to them? Or is God going to respond with compassion, turning from his fierce anger? What's God going to do? And what's interesting is the king of Nineveh, we're gonna see in chapter three, verse nine, asks this very question. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows how God's going to respond, but we're gonna cast ourselves on his mercy. The answer we're gonna see is God knows. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We're gonna see this unpacked, but let's look at the events leading up to this question in Jonah 3 verse one. Says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's interesting to see with slight alteration, God issues the same call for Jonah to go to Nineveh that he made in Jonah chapter one. You can flip those open and see this is almost word for word the same call that he makes on Jonah. The only differences are here God doesn't mention the son of Amittai, Jonah the son of Amittai, and instead of saying their evil has come up against me or come up before me, God commands Jonah to call out against Nineveh the message that he'll tell him. So he doesn't say, hey, their evil's come up against me. He says, cry out against them the message that I'll tell you. Now in one sense, we are right back to the start of our story. 
God is calling Jonah, a prophet in northern Israel, to go to Nineveh, this important city in the Assyrian Empire, and to call out against it. This is right where we began two weeks ago. You might be thinking to yourselves, is this deja vu? Are we back to the same exact thing? But as readers of the book of Jonah, this is the second time God's word has come to Jonah. We're told that. And as readers, we know what it's taken to get to this point. We know about Jonah's desperate flight away from God's presence, the opposite direction of Nineveh. Instead of going to northern, modern-day Iraq, he heads to southern Spain, the opposite direction. We know about the massive storm that God used to get Jonah's attention. We know about Jonah getting thrown overboard to his certain death. We know that God graciously and supernaturally saved Jonah from death. He snatched him from the depths of the ocean, keeping him alive in the belly of a giant fish for three days. We know this as readers of the book of Jonah. So this isn't a beginning, this is a new beginning. This is a second call to go to the enemies of Jonah's people, the Ninevites, these wicked people, with a word from God. The call hasn't changed. The question we're left with as readers, has Jonah changed? In the last two chapters, has anything changed in this prophet? Well, as we see, Jonah's response is drastically different here in chapter three. In chapter one, Jonah arises and flees to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. This is a repeated refrain, away from the presence of the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. He gets up and goes, but he goes in the exact opposite direction of where God called him to. But here we are in chapter three, and Jonah gets up and goes again, but he goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He gets up and goes to the place that God called him and he does it in the way that God asks according to the word of the Lord. So at least in his actions, this is a very different prophet from the one that we met in chapter one. Now in the intervening time, we know Jonah has been dramatically reminded running from God is a futile exercise. It does not work. If God really wants Jonah to go to Nineveh, he will use any means necessary to make sure that it happens. He'll throw a strong wind on the ocean to whip up a storm. He'll convict Jonah that he needs to be thrown overboard to save the ship and the crew. He'll appoint a great fish to keep Jonah from drowning. He'll keep Jonah alive in the belly of the fish for three days. He'll command that fish to vomit Jonah up onto dry land wherever he wants. In essence, Jonah is learning Psalm 139 verses seven and following. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah has learned trying to run from God's call doesn't work. If he really wants me to do something, I'm going to do it. God's prevented Jonah's attempts to flee from his presence and now he's calling Jonah back to his original mission. And here, Jonah obeys. As we look at verse three, this is actually like a break in the action. This this in some sense allows Jonah to travel to Nineveh. It's kind of this interlude in the middle of the narrative. Now we know historically travel conditions as they were, Jonah's trip was about 500 miles to Nineveh. Would have taken about a month to get there. But verse three isn't kind of just this pause in the narrative. It gives us vital information. Information that's gonna help us going forward to understand what's happening. Now, I've already mentioned this, but Jonah is going according to the word of the Lord. And this stands as a direct contrast to Jonah fleeing in chapter one, away from the presence of the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. Here, he's going according to the presence of the Lord. And I know as I was reading through this, I need to keep this statement in mind that Jonah's going according to the word of the Lord because I read Jonah 3 and I'm like, is he doing this kind of half-heartedly? Is he really obeying God or isn't he? Well, what we're told in the narrative is Jonah is being obedient. As weird as, as, as Jonah 3 seems to us, he's being obedient. He's going according to the word of the Lord. We're not told any differently in Jonah 3. We're also given information about Nineveh Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. That's what the ESV has. We were told in chapter one, hey, Nineveh is a great city. Here we see what that means. The first thing that means is Nineveh is an important city in God's sight. 
Nineveh is an important city in God's sight. If this verse is rendered literally from the Hebrew, it would say this, Nineveh was a great city to God. Nineveh was a great city to God. So as we've been reading through the narrative, we could kind of pick up on our own, hey, you know what? Nineveh is probably a pretty important city in God's sight. He's, he's really tracking Jonah down to get him to go to this city. God's got a special plan for this city. But here we're told explicitly, it's a great city. It's an important city in God's sight. He has something he wants done there. And it's actually reminded me as I was reading through this of Acts chapter 18. Paul on one of his missionary journeys, he's in the city of Corinth. He's been experiencing a lot of persecution. And in Acts 18 verses nine and 10, it says this. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, go on speaking and don't be silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. God had a special mission for Paul at Corinth and God has a special mission for Jonah at Nineveh. But Nineveh is not only great because God wants his word proclaimed there, it's also great because of its size. And that kind of makes sense to us. It says this is a three days journey in breadth. But I do want to to mention that commentators are all over the map on what this means. Does this mean that it literally took three days to walk across Nineveh? Some people say, yes, it did. Um, I think the most likely is this is saying, hey, if somebody was going to go into Nineveh and preach and proclaim a message to like everybody in the city, it would take three days to do it. Stopping at various public places to proclaim God's word. That makes the most sense to me based on what I saw. But regardless of how you interpret what this means, three days journey in breadth, what it's communicating is clear. This is a big city. This is a major city. This is a great city. It's a large city. And in verse four, Jonah finally makes it to Nineveh. Something that we've been eagerly anticipating since chapter one. And he begins his first day of preaching. His first of three days in the city. And in English, and this is what trips me up, In Jonah chapter three, in English, we have eight words from his message. Eight words from his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I alluded to this in week one where I said, I think this is like the worst sermon ever. I don't wanna be too hard on this. Eight words in English, and that's actually five words in Hebrew, even more concise, five words. To say that Jonah's message is concise is a huge understatement. Five words. Now, presumably, and I'm gonna give Jonah credit here, Jonah probably said more than these five words during his first day of preaching. He probably didn't just say this. When, what we see from the Ninevites' response is that they understood more than what's communicated here, so he probably said some other things, but the impression we're given from the narrative is Jonah's message is short, it's negative, and it's vague. It's short, it's negative, and it's vague. Not a lot of detail, He doesn't flesh out a lot of things and it's negative. Hey, in 40 days, your city's gonna be overthrown. In 40 days, your city's gonna be overthrown. That's all that Jonah communicates to Nineveh as far as we're told in the narrative. But something we do need to keep in mind, and this was a check on myself, according to the narrative, this short, negative, vague message is the message that God wanted Jonah to communicate. He has gone according to the word of the Lord And apparently we're not told any differently. This is what God wanted him to communicate. So as much as I wanna be hard on this, say this is the worst sermon ever, this is apparently what God wanted Jonah to communicate. So how do the Ninevites respond? Let's look at verse five. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The people of Nineveh believed God. Verse five serves as this summary of how people respond to Jonah's message. Remember Jonah's message? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. How do they respond to this? They believe God. 
They believe Jonah to be a legitimate messenger from his God and they believe that his words are true. What Jonah's proclaiming is actually going to happen. And because they believe Jonah's message, they respond with mourning. In typical uh, fashion for this part of the world, in this time period, the people of Nineveh show their mourning externally by doing things, by refraining from eating, by putting on sackcloth. Now, sackcloth was this thick and coarse garment made from goat's hair. It showed like, hey, I wanna be super uncomfortable. I was thinking about this. This would be like putting a wool sweater on with no shirt underneath. Just like, I'm gonna be uncomfortable today. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna reject any earthly comfort. And we see Nineveh's mourning is wholesale. This isn't just pockets of people within the city or those who are like really gullible or maybe the religious fanatics are like, oh yes, we believe this guy who's come from a foreign country and proclaim this over it. This is everyone from the greatest to the least, the richest to the poorest, the social elite, the beggar, everyone mourns over Jonah's message. And when I say everyone, the narrative is explicit about this. It's the king of Nineveh himself and his nobles as well. The word of God spoken through Jonah makes its way to the throne room of the king. Who, the, 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 the populace of the city is stirred up. The word comes to the king and the king's response to God's word is a stunning contrast to Jonah's response to God's word in chapter one. I don't wanna be too hard on Jonah, but the contrast between these two is significant. In chapter one, Jonah heard the word of the Lord, arose and fled God's presence in the opposite direction. What's the king of Nineveh do? He hears God's word, arises from his throne, removes his robe, covers himself in sackcloth and sits in ashes and tells everyone, call out to God mightily. Run to his presence that this crisis might be averted. This is mourning on the same level of Job after the worst two days of his life. That's how the king of Nineveh responds to this. And although there's a citywide mourning already taking place, The king and his nobles issue a decree. They wanna lay out, hey, what should your mourning look like? Look at Jonah 3, 7, and 8. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil, from the violence that's in his his hands. This is mourning to the extreme. This is mourning to the nth degree. Not even animals are excluded. It's a little bit confusing for our minds. They are jeopardizing their economy by the type of mourning that they're suggesting. Don't even feed your animals. These animals that you depend on for your livelihood, let them starve. And you can picture this in a city at that time of all this livestock not eating. They're gonna start crying out for food. And their crying out is gonna join with the people crying out to God. You've got this city, man and beast, calling out. Typical fasting would only include food. And here the king and his nobles ban drink as well. It's not just about, hey, hey, don't eat anything. Don't even drink anything, not even water. And in these verses, in verses seven and eight, we see the Ninevites' response is more than just mourning. The king calls for the people, call out mightily to God. He asks for them, turn from your evil ways, turn from your violence. What this is, this is recognition recognition and acceptance of wrongdoing in God's sight. Recognition and acceptance of wrongdoing in God's sight. This is desire to live in a different way than evil and violence. In short, this is repentance. They're repenting. But it's not just repentance either. Look at chapter three, verse nine. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Based on Jonah's message, the Ninevites believe we have sinned against God and we are going to be destroyed in 40 days. We believe this to be true. They understand God has every right to respond to us with strict judgment and to utterly destroy our city. That's what we deserve. We fully grasp that. But the king and everyone in this city is willing to go all in on this faint possibility, this little glimmer of hope that sincere repentance for this city might cause this city to be overthrown in a different way. 
that God might instead respond to them with compassion, turning from his fierce anger. They're believing salvation belongs to the Lord. He can do as he wishes. Now, as we look at the Ninevites' response to God's word, it's breathtaking in its thoroughness and sincerity. And what might make this dramatic show of repentance and belief even more stunning is it happened after the first day of a three-day preaching tour, after day one. And it's in response to this short, negative, vague message. And they're mourning, they're calling out to God, they're putting on sackcloth, they're fasting. I thought it was interesting that in the narrative of Jonah, the author intentionally leaves out a lot of details about time. We don't get a ton of time messages in the book of Jonah. We don't know how long Jonah was at sea before he got struck by a storm. We don't know how long Jonah was back on dry land before God's second call to him. We aren't told in the narrative how long it took Jonah to travel from Israel to Nineveh. We just know that from historical sources. We don't know how long it took the people of Nineveh to fast, how long they were fasting for. What we do know, it was the first day of preaching and this dramatic change happens. Day one. The impression that we're given is the Ninevites' dramatic repentance and belief had nothing to do with the length of Jonah's message. It has very little to do with the impressive content of Jonah's message. The Ninevites' repentance has everything to do with God's sovereign work on the hearts of the people in the city. It's not what was being proclaimed or how it was being proclaimed or how powerful this message is or where Jonah was proclaiming it. Day one and everybody's laid out, mourning, weeping, But the question we're left with after this section, who knows how God's going to respond? Who knows how God's going to respond to the Ninevites? Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. He didn't do it. If there's any doubt left in our mind about the sincerity or the seriousness of this response to the Ninevites, we have God's take on it in this passage. God sees how the Ninevites respond. He sees specifically they turn from their evil way. God relents of the overthrow of the city. God doesn't do it. God has every right to punish the Ninevites according to his strict justice. We need to know that. God has every right to do that. By their own admission, the Ninevites are an evil and violent people. That comes from their own mouth in this chapter. Turn from your evil and violence. Evil and violent people deserve to be punished by a just God. Evil and violent people deserve that. But the Ninevites have cast themselves on the mercy of the God who's sovereign over salvation. What they're saying is maybe, just maybe, if we turn from our evil and violent ways, God might also turn. Maybe, just maybe, he'll turn from his fierce anger, show us his mercy and compassion instead. And the wonder of Jonah 3 is, God does it. Instead of coming to an evil and violent people after 40 days to overthrow them in destruction, that's what God's promised, God sees an evil and violent people who have had their hearts overthrown in repentance. That's what God sees and God relents. The narrative of Jonah 3 is actually really simple. It's extremely simple. It's the easiest to sum up in the book of Jonah. You could look at the titles on your notes. Jonah calls out, Nineveh's overturned, God relents. Very simple narrative. But what's actually going on in Jonah 3 is anything but simple. It's the most profound assertion in the book of Jonah that salvation belongs to the Lord. The most dramatic picture of that assertion is here in Jonah 3. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And saying that in the book of Jonah is saying something. Because Jonah is full of drama. We had the sailors being saved from the storm, and that was really dramatic. We had Jonah being saved from the depths of the ocean, that was really dramatic. Here we have drama on a different scale. We have an evil and violent city renowned in the ancient world for their wicked ways. Everybody knew this. This was the reputation of the Ninevites. Everybody knew it. And what they hear is a short, negative, vague message preached for one day and everyone in Nineveh is mourning, turning from their evil ways, calling out to God. And I think we can read this passage and kind of be numb to this truth about what's actually taking place here. So I try to think of this in modern terms. So picture this, if you will. 
The rough equivalent of Jonah chapter three in modern terms is a church in the city of Clearwater planning to have a long weekend of meetings. There's gonna be a Friday night sermon, there's gonna be a Saturday sermon, there's gonna be a Sunday sermon, and they're gonna be focused on the subject of God's judgment at the coming of Jesus. That's what this, uh, th- this mini uh, uh, speaking thing they're gonna have is. And so the main speaker gives a brief overview of the subject on Friday night, doesn't go into a lot of details. He says, hey, what we're gonna be talking about this weekend is the Bible teaches Jesus is going to return. God is going to judge the world. Uh, it, you know, Maybe there's a couple pictures used of he's gonna separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. That's what we're gonna be talking about this weekend. Very short, very introductory But when this speaker turns on the local news the next morning, he's really surprised by what he sees. Mayor George Kretikos and the city council of Clearwater are issuing a statement on Bay News 9. But the odd thing is they're not wearing the typical politician power suits. They're wearing simple black clothing. Their eyes are red. Their faces are pale. They've obviously been like weeping, like all out. These guys are a wreck. And then their statement starts. On behalf of the mayor and the city council of Clearwater, we're declaring a citywide fast in light of the message preached yesterday evening about God's coming judgment. Until further notice, everyone should refrain from eating food or drinking drink to show the seriousness with which we take this message. All businesses are closed indefinitely. Everyone should wear subdued and somber clothing. All flags will be at half mast. Everyone should spend their time calling out to God mightily that we would not be found guilty at his coming judgment. Everyone needs to acknowledge how each of us personally and collectively as a city, we have wickedly broken God's law. We not only need to be asking forgiveness for these offenses, but we need to be wrestling with how to stop these offenses going forward. Who knows? God might turn from his fierce anger at us in the day of judgment and show us mercy instead. Now, I never expect to turn on the TV and see that on Bay News 9. I don't expect that. It's unbelievable to us. A city of over 100,000 people turning in mass from their evil ways overnight in response to a short, vague sermon. That wouldn't happen, right? This is what happens in Jonah 3. With humans, this is impossible. The only explanation is salvation belongs to the Lord. We wouldn't expect that to happen. That's what's happening in Jonah 3. In addition to being an incredibly dramatic display of God's sovereignty and salvation, Jonah 3 is instructive to us. There are things for us to learn in Jonah 3, things for us to change how we live in Jonah 3. The first thing I want to touch on before we close tonight is that Jonah 3 gives us a clear historical example of what true repentance looks like. Jonah 3 answers the question, what does true repentance look like? A historical example of this. And not that Jonah 3 gives us a pattern to follow to a T or a checklist to work through every time we feel like we need to repent so that every time we repent, it needs to look exactly like Jonah 3 or we're not doing it right. It's not what I'm proposing. Jonah 3 gives us helpful concepts to be thinking through as we work through seasons of repentance in our life. And something I want to say from this on the beginning is repentance isn't a one-time deal. It's not a one-time deal. And that's a difference between us and Jonah 3 because the repentance of the Ninevites in Jonah 3 is a one-time historical repentance in light of a specific proclamation of God's word. Hey, God is going to overthrow you in 40 days. And they repent in that moment. But repentance in the Christian life shouldn't be a one-time act. It's not hearing the gospel one time, oh, I'm gonna be judged one day, I better repent of my sins. It's not a one-time thing. Repentance should be an ongoing response to our own sinful tendencies in light of our deserved judgment by God at the coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming. God is going to judge us. We need to be consistently repenting of our sins. That being said, as we look at Jonah 3, true repentance begins with believing God. If you look at Jonah 3, verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. And it's believing God about a very specific thing and not a very fun thing either. It's believing you have done something wrong, actually many things wrong in God's sight, and that you deserve to be punished for it. Believing that. 
Now, certainly, uh, as we've already mentioned, there's more to Jonah's message than just what we have in Jonah 3, verse 4. We see that in the Ninevites' response. Hey, they know it's God that's going to overthrow the city. They know that it's God going to overthrow the city in light of their wickedness. There was more content to Jonah's message than just what we see. But the Ninevites believe this stuff. True repentance starts with hearing a word from the Lord about your own guilt. And then you actually believe that you're guilty and deserve uh, judgment. You actually believe that. You actually believe that you deserve to be punished. Now, if you guys are anything like me, this is hard to do. Sounds simple, very difficult to do because I'm a justifier. I can qualify my sin with the best of them. I can minimize my guilt with the best of them. When I'm confronted with my own sin, there's this inner dialogue going on in me justifying myself. One of the best antidotes to that type of self-justification, coming to God's word with humility and asking questions from God's word we don't like asking. How does this passage show me my guilt in front of a just and holy God? How does this passage show that? What areas of my life does this passage shine a light on that are evil in God's sight? It seems really negative. That is one of the functions of God's word, conviction. One of the functions of scripture is to show us our guilt. We need to believe that. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sins. And so the first question when we're thinking about repentance is, do you believe you've done something wrong? Actually, many things wrong. And do you actually come to grips with the fact that you deserve punishment for it? And so do I. The Ninevites believed that. They believed judgment was coming. They responded dramatically for it. And we see that believing God about our guilt and our deserved punishment leads to mourning it leads to mourning. How can it do anything else? If we sincerely, really believe that we've done evil in the sight of the God who made us and that we deserve punishment from him, mourning is actually a natural response to that. Now, the mourning of the Ninevites included fasting and sackcloth. It includes these external expressions of grief that are a natural overflow of what's going on inside the Ninevites. They felt like they looked emaciated, uncomfortable, Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that if you don't fast or put on sackcloth or bathe yourself in tears, you're not actually mourning for your sin. I don't want to say that. Trying to codify these types of things is exactly what Jesus was criticizing in the Pharisees. It's exactly what he was criticizing. But I do want to say that fasting and tears and other expressions of grief are not inappropriate to true repentance. They're not inappropriate to true repentance. Not as a means of showing others how sorry you are, but because your hearts are grieved over over rebellion against God. When we have a bad day, other people see that. It's visible in us. Do we have that type of response to sin, a grieving over it? Grieving over a rebellion against, against God leads to changes in how we live. That's the next thing this chapter shows us. Grieving over our rebellion against God leads to changes in how we live. Now, presumably, we're not told this in the text, but presumably, the Ninevites don't immediately go back to their wicked and evil ways as soon as God relents. They're not like, oh man, the danger's passed. Let's go back to our pillaging and violence. Let's go right back to that. We do know generations down the road, they're exactly in the same position as they are here. We see that biblically. But presumably, this generation of Ninevites truly repents. The king and his nobles call for their city to change their ways in light of God's word. Now, granted, a difference for us under the, under the new covenant is it's the Holy Spirit in our lives that empowers us to actually change. The Holy Spirit that actually makes us make these changes in our lives to live in ways that are pleasing to God. But the question for us is, is change a part of our thinking when we repent? Is change a part of our thinking when we repent? Do we ask ourselves, how do I stop from boiling over in anger against my spouse? How do I not gossip behind someone's back the next time? How do I change my spending patterns to align more with God's priorities? True repentance results in change by God's God's spirit working in our lives. We need to be asking that question of change. And what all this is taking for granted is that we actually go to God to tell him about our rebellion and our grief and our desire to change. The king of Nineveh asks people to call out mightily to God. Repentance is a relational activity. 
Repentance is a relational activity, not us holding up in a closet, wrestling with our own consciences, the steps that we're gonna take the next time to make sure this doesn't happen again. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is going before God's throne of grace in humility, admitting our sin to him and all of its ugliness, grieving in God's presence for how we've disobeyed and rebelled against him, asking for his grace to change us and ultimately resting in his promises and his character. Repentance is relational specifically relational with God. If we're not going to God with repentance, we're not actually repenting. That's not what it is. And this is where we see true repentance coming full circle because it ends with us believing God. Not just believing that we've done something wrong in God's sight, that we deserve punishment from God for those things, but believing that we are calling out to the God who is sovereign over salvation. The God who can turn and relent and not act toward us in his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's the God we're looking to. Believing that. And that leads us to the second thing that I I want to be a change in us as we look at Jonah 3. We have a far greater assurance than the Ninevites could imagine of the God who relents. We have a far greater assurance of God's character in that way the God who relents, than the Ninevites could even dream about. And this is honestly the section that I was really wrestling with this week of what Jonah 3 is asserting. Something I want to make clear, and I feel like I need to make clear, is the Ninevites were calling out to God on the possibility that he would relent in this specific situation. The possibility that he would relent. One of the wonders of God's grace shown to the Ninevites in this historical situation is God didn't have to. He didn't have to relent. The Ninevites' response of repentance wasn't based on any specific promise that God had made to them. Hey, if you repent sincerely, I'll turn from my anger. They didn't have that. The Ninevites' response was a sincere appeal to God, the God who's sovereign over salvation, that if he wants to, he can relent and not punish them for their sins, but he doesn't have to. Repentance isn't this magic formula that all the bad things in this life aren't gonna happen to us if we repent. It's not gonna ensure that we'll never be touched with the earthly consequences of our sin. This is really hard for us to grasp. This is a difficult part of the passage, but God could have accepted the repentance of the Ninevites. He could have accepted that spiritually and still decided to punish them in space and time. He could have done that. They were evil and violent. He could have gone through with the word he said to them. And a clear example of this, a really tragic example of this from the Old Testament is the end of the story of David and his sin against Uriah. 2 Samuel 12 contains the end of this story. This is the well-known story. David has an affair with a married woman. When she becomes pregnant, David tries to cover up their affair, but it doesn't work out. And so he has Uriah, the husband of this woman, murdered to try and avoid the consequences of the affair. Man, if I just get Uriah off the scene, everything's gonna be fine. God sends a prophet to David. Nathan comes to David in 2 Samuel 12. He confronts him about the the affair and he promises the child of this affair will die. The child's gonna die. David, in that passage, if you look at it, he doesn't flinch from admitting, I have sinned before the Lord. He admits that. And actually, it's, it's interesting to see, he responds in many of the same ways that we see the Ninevites respond in Jonah 3. David fasts from food. He lays on the ground all night, uh, shying away from any sort of comfort. He cries out to God on behalf of the child, but after seven days, the child dies. There's still a punishment there. What happened? Did David not repent thoroughly enough? Did he not go through the checklist and and hit everything? God can accept David's repentance, but repentance isn't a magical formula to avoid the earthly consequences of sin. He doesn't do that. In David's instance, God chooses in his sovereignty to respond to David's sin with strict judgment. That's what he decides to do in that instance. As far as the earthly consequences of that sin are concerned, God goes through with it. In Nineveh's instance, God chooses to respond to their evil and violence with mercy and compassion as far as the earthly consequences of that sin are concerned. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In one instance, God takes away. In one instance, God gives. And so the wrestling I was doing this week is, what does this say for us? 
Are we just left with this terrifying notion that God's decisions about how he responds to repentance are flippant or capricious? That God's mood or his behavior can suddenly change with no warning, no discernible reason? We don't know what kind of God we're going to get every day? Is that what we're left with from Jonah 3? By no means. That's not the message of the gospel. This picture that we get in Jonah 3 of the God who relents is a shadow of the God who's fully revealed his character in Jesus Christ. It's pointing forward to God's revelation of himself in Jesus. Now in one sense, and we need to feel this tension, Jonah 3 should leave us uncomfortable. This uncomfortable picture of the sovereign God who is free to do as he pleases as it relates to men and their sin. God can do what he wants. There's a sense in which we need to be uncomfortable with salvation belonging to the Lord because it means we aren't in charge. We're not in charge. And God's ways are not our ways. We need to see these two stories and be like, whoa. God can decide according to his mercy and grace and his infinite wisdom to do as he sees fit in these instances. That's hard to wrestle with. Salvation does not belong to us. But in the midst of that discomfort, we have the assurance that God's ways are infinitely better than our ways, even if we don't understand I can't resolve these two passages. I don't know why God had strict judgment on David, this man after his own heart, and he responds in mercy to these wicked Ninevites. I don't know, other than saying salvation belongs to the Lord. In another sense, Jonah 3 should leave us with the immeasurably comforting picture of the God who relents of his fierce anger towards us because of the work of Jesus. It points us forward to this picture of God that we get in the gospel. This is what I want us to hear. The Ninevites had no promise that if they sincerely repented of their sins, they would avoid the earthly consequences of their sins. They were casting themselves humbly on God's mercy and their understanding salvation belongs to the Lord. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. We're not promised that. We're gonna cast ourselves on God and see what happens. The difference is we have good news. We have a promise. That's the big difference. When we're asked, who knows how God is going to respond to you? We know because of the good news of Jesus. Not that we would avoid the earthly consequences of our sins if our repentance is sincere enough. That's not what this passage is pointing to. This passage is saying, because of the work of Jesus on our behalf, we will never face the eternal consequences of our sins. We have a promise. That's a big difference between how we go to God and how the Ninevites went to God. Because of the work of Jesus on our behalf, we will never face the eternal consequences of our sin. Because Jesus has already faced those consequences for us. Jesus has already accepted the punishment of our sin on our behalf. This is good news. This is the good news that Jonah 3 is pointing forward to. If we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus, we will never stand face to face with the fierce anger of God's wrath for our sin because Jesus stood face to face with the fierce anger of God's wrath in our place. That's the difference. We don't have to cast ourselves blindly on God's mercy. Hey, we know that salvation belongs to the Lord, hoping against hope that God might relent. We have a promise. That is a huge difference. We see this in Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. But now, new covenant, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been made clear. It's come on the scene historically in the form of a man apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a wrath taker in our place. The one that got the full blast of God's wrath for us, that's Jesus, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the promise that we have in the new covenant that makes all the difference in the world. 
We're not promised that we're gonna be spared from all the earthly consequences of our sins if we just follow this checklist of repentance in Jonah chapter three, but we will be spared because Jesus wasn't. By God's grace, we have access to the God who relents through his promises concerning his son. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we're spared from God's fierce anger, not because of something we do, because of something Jesus did, taking God's fierce anger for us at the cross. So Jonah 3 is pointing us forward to wrestling with this revelation of the God who relents. How can we approach this God? Is it just kind of in a willy-nilly fashion? However God's feeling today, we have a promise. Looking at Jonah 3, we get a simple but compelling narrative that puts flesh on this truth from the book of Jonah that salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah calls out against the Ninevites with this word that God gives him. Nineveh responds to this word with a sincere and profound repentance. They cast themselves on the mercy of the God who's sovereign over salvation and God relents of the disaster that he promised. Very straightforward. But my prayer for for Jonah 3 as we look at this is that we are humbled again by the truth that salvation belongs to God, not to us. There's going to be times where we wrestle with that sincerely, not understanding God's ways. It's all right to be humbled sometimes. I also pray that we're challenged by this picture of true repentance. I also pray that we are encouraged, encouraged by the promises that we have the difference between us and the Ninevites, the God who relents because of the work of Jesus on our behalf makes all the difference in the world. So my prayer is that God would be at work in our hearts with the truths of this message. Let's pray. God, I know that in in some ways I'm left uncomfortable from Jonah 3. That as I see your sovereignty and salvation play out in history. It's confusing. It's hard to grasp. Your ways are not my ways. Humble me under this truth. Humble me as well as I think about repentance, what repentance looks like in my own life, how, how infrequently I do it. I pray that my, my, my repentance would look more like the sincere repentance of the Ninevites. I pray as well that I would leave this place encouraged. The promise that we have in Jesus. But now, your righteousness has been revealed in a person. Jesus, we get to see that so clearly. The God-man, Jesus Christ, who gives us access by his life and death and resurrection to the God who relents that by your grace, we don't have to face your fierce anger and your wrath. Help us to be encouraged by that truth this week. Amen.